2: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. Deep inside of uh, one, maybe two feet of snow. It is Sunday, February twenty first, twenty twenty one, and we have some things to go over today. Some details that I've learned from the uh, the Net Promoter Score study. Some things that we've learned about the demographics and the maybe the preferences of the wrestling audience. Uh, an update on the WWE employee raises and promotions. A stock bonus now going to WWE employees. An update on viewership. Uh, The WWE Network, the rights being acquired by Peacock and migrating over on March 18th. Was the WWE Network more profitable than pay-per-view? We will revisit that question today. WCFO Christina Sandler was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, where she said some very interesting things that you won't hear anywhere else, but right here on WrestleLomics, because I'm the only one, apparently, that dares to go behind the Wall Street Journal's paywall. But first... Get your notebooks out at patreon.com slash russellnomics if you have access as we go through all the news and notes and the viewership, first of all. At least tentatively, I, I have made... Some tables. I've done some magic in the magic spreadsheet, the wrestling viewership spreadsheet 2.0 that all uh, patrons have access to. I have uh, I've taken basically the non-news cable average, and I've lined that up the the month, the monthly year-over-year changes for the last three months, and lined that up against the five wrestling programs that we look at regularly right here, so that we can make some sense out of what these trends in viewership uh, mean. Because it's, uh, it's very confusing, and I think often misleading to just look at the numbers and not look at them in the proper context. So what I'm trying to establish is, is a proper context and an informative context to look at these numbers and rather than just rattling off some numbers. Um, so you may know that WWE SmackDown and WWE Raw, excuse me, I was not pronouncing the, the initials correctly for the last few minutes, WWE SmackDown, and WWE Raw sort of live in their own stratosphere where they do around 2 million. Raw's been doing a little bit under 2 million viewers lately. And then AEW Dynamite and WWE NXT live in a, another stratosphere below that where they do between 600,000 and or 900,000 viewers even in the case of, of AEW. And, uh, and then Impact does... Uh, uh, A couple tiers, really, below that, doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200,000 viewers. So, that's the lay of the land, but what are the trends um, compared to general trends of cable? And here it is. Who's overperforming and who's underperforming versus the trends of cable in general? And now I can tell you, with with some uh, definitiveness, is that a word? that who's overperforming are are just about um everybody is doing better than cable overall for the most part with some exceptions um impact its trends are doing the best actually in 18 to 49 impact is actually seeing year over year growth in 18 to 49 in the months of january and february and they actually had a no change month of december that coinciding with the the addition of AEW Talent appearing on their program. So that looks to be, this is my uh, speculation, but I can say with some confidence, I think, that uh, the addition of AEW Talent to Impact has been a real success for Impact. And access by the way, uh, the network that Impact Wrestling airs on, which uh, access is owned by Anthem, which owns both access and Impact, uh, as, as best I can tell, Impact is the number one show on on Access, uh, nothing else except for uh, one instance of a concert has appeared in the Showbiz Daily Top 50. And uh, programs for uh, Access apparently have been able to show up in the Showbiz Daily Top 50 since December, and I have not yet come across another Access show. So, Access is a uh, number one show Impact Wrestling. Apparently, improving thanks to the addition of AEW talent on that program. Uh, In February, at the moment, AEW is showing a 1% growth in February. Uh, Meanwhile, who's underperforming? Well, uh, in December, Raw was underperforming in total audience. Uh, In December, NXT was underperforming in total audience. In December, Impact was underperforming in total audience. That has all subsided, though. Everybody, in terms of total audience, is doing better on a year-over-year comparison right now in the month of February. But what about the Key Demo? As you may know, the Key Demo is the only thing that matters. Uh, it, it matters greatly to advertisers. Uh, in the Key Demo, NXT is the only one that is down below the rate of cable overall. Year-over-year um, over year comparison in terms of book, eight months. If you look at the, uh, the notebook, uh, you will see. It will make more sense what I'm saying here. Uh, so NXT is down by 37% right now. In February, which is uh, quite a bit, quite a ways further down than the 29% negative change for cable overall. And when I use cable overall, I mean uh, the non-news cable in the the daily top 50. So I'm excluding CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC, which do better than the rest of cable by by a pretty wide margin in terms of maintaining an audience on a year-over-year basis. So. But bottom line on this? Uh, in total audience, everybody's doing okay. In key demo, NXT's not doing well. Uh, Impact is doing really well, but Impact still uh, exists in a stratosphere far below the other four programs. Impact still doing roughly a third, maybe less than yeah, less than a third of the next nearest wrestling program NXT in terms of total audience. Something else I looked at this week is the variance. Oh, this will be confusing. The variance over time normalized across these programs. So basically the question I'm asking is, are some of these wrestling programs uh, more volatile or more stable in their viewership trends compared to the other wrestling programs? And what I found was AEW is considerably more volatile Uh, than the other programs, at least over the last 13 weeks. Who's the most stable? Uh, NXT is the most stable in total audience, and Raw is the most stable in the key demo. And at least in AEW's case, that that makes sense in the sense that uh, AEW over the last 13 weeks, that goes all the way back to November 24th, and that goes through the month of of, of December, where uh, AEW had a lot of big audiences in December, and things have calmed down a bit in January and February. But to be clear, and I I didn't quantify it before, uh, AEW looks to be about three times as volatile as its pro-wrestling programming peers. How about that for alliteration? Pro-wrestling programming peers. There's no plosives on this program either. But anyway... And then, in a follow-up from last week, WWE uh, employees, so this is employees only, this does not pertain to wrestlers, talent, W em- employees had their raises and promotions uh, frozen, they were told, last week Friday. Uh, this was told to them by by managers, etc. Anyway, if this follows their, uh, W's Most Profitable Year Ever, which was reported on February 4th in their Q4 earnings report. The highest net income for a year in WB's history. Adjusted for inflation. More profitable than the Attitude Era years of 1999 and 2000. Despite that. Uh, W missing in Q4 on its earnings per share ratio. Basically, W was profitable in Q4, but not as profitable as analysts were expecting. Uh, That resulted in the stock price falling down a bit. uh, The shares trading at, let's check it, $46.81 at the close of the market this week, Friday. So possibly an effort to push expenses down, to push profitability up, Raises and promotions for all employees were put on hold indefinitely. For WWE employees, uh, after talking to some employees, uh, I've I've been told that morale has suffered at least in the short term. A lot of people were upset and felt that their trust uh, in the company had been violated, and that their that morale generally had suffered. And, and then this past week, uh, employees learned that a lot of them. Maybe most of them are now receiving a special equity award, I learned this past week, uh, in the value of $3,000, a special equity award of WB shares of $3,000 that will vest next month. So it looks like there's some consolation. The company did not make it clear that the reason for this special equity award distributed widely to employees, they did not make it clear that that was because of the freezing of raises and salaries, but it certainly coincides with a lot of employees receiving the news and being upset about it. Uh, WB employees, uh, a lot of them have taken on extra work since the pandemic, since a lot of employees were furloughed or laid off, Uh, many taking on extra tasks, said to be some taking on the work of two or three people. And um, a lot of workers, especially those who had worked on the road at tapings, uh, they've worked through a number of COVID outbreaks, working alongside many, as we've learned uh, through various reports. There have been numerous COVID outbreaks and numerous people testing positive. And uh, WWE employees have worked through it all and we're hoping to be rewarded. But uh, that did not turn out to be the case. But WB has at least given them $3,000 worth of stock. And then this week on Russellnomics.com, there's a new article uh, looking over the net promoter score study that I did, uh, which is included in the Pro Wrestling Industry Report for 2020. This was a result of 500 valid responses that were found uh, through a survey, not distributed uh, on social media organically, but distributed on social media by putting out a Facebook ad. But anyway... Uh, the results showed that uh, Net Promoter Score, I think we've talked about this before on WrestleLomics Radio, uh, the Net Promoter Score showed AEW uh, scoring the highest with a point four three uh, um, And all of the W programs uh, scoring a positive score, uh, New Japan positive, just barely. And then uh, Real Monitor and Impact Wrestling, negative. But the point is, uh, there's some new stuff I wrote about here. Uh, as part of the Net Promoter Score article that is on WrestleNomics.com for everybody for free, ad-free as well. But uh, there's some interesting demographic information that uh, I was able to extract from the survey, I guess. Um, First, the age of the respondents, respondents, the subjects, whatever, the age of these people who responded to the survey, Now, granted, this is being fed through the filter of Facebook. So maybe Facebook is skewing this one way or the other. If it's skewing it at all, one would think it's skewing older, I guess. Older people use Facebook, I've been told, and and do not use other social media platforms as much. Um, But anyway, this suggests that the, at least uh, among the people who responded to this survey, that the median age of basically all these programs is somebody in their early 40s, the median age. Of course, the median age of linear TV viewership is much higher, but linear TV viewership is definitely skewing old. But all the programs, even AEW, uh, 42, uh, Raw, SmackDown, AEW Dynamite, Impact Wrestling, median viewer, median person who says they watch it regularly or occasionally, age 42. 42. Uh, NXT, the youngest, at 40 flat. And then Ring of Honor, the oldest, at 44. New Japan, in the middle, at 43. Um, <clears throat> something else I kind of take away from this again. Median age, very similar. But um, the WWE programs, uh, a higher percentage in the 2 to 17 age group. So maybe more kids watching WE programs versus... Uh, the other programs, which kind of makes sense. Um, When you're a kid, you may not be uh, discovering the more niche stuff yet. And as far as what they were also asked, the uh, people who did the survey were also asked about whether or not they have access to live cable TV channels. And basically, I tried to distinguish between a virtual MVPD and a MVPD If you don't know what that means, that's basically the difference between having a normal, traditional cable or satellite service versus having one of the many uh, over-the-internet access uh, services to cable channels. So I personally am a subscriber to Sling, but there's also uh, Hulu Live TV and YouTube TV that give you access to live, linear uh, cable TV channels. And the results, actually, somewhat surprisingly, were... Uh, pretty consistent across the board. Everybody who says they are a current viewer of the given pro, of, of any of these programs was so somewhere between 68 uh, to 73 percent of these people say they live in a household that pays. That pays. The word "pay" was used, so this does not hopefully include anybody who's uh, pirating it. Uh, if everybody's being honest here, but uh, actually the uh, the program's viewers who were the least likely to live in a home with MVPD access or virtual MVPD access with SmackDown, which makes sense. And I'm narrowing this particular uh, graph that I'm looking at by U.S. responses only, by the way. Uh, So, of course, Raw and SmackDown, uh, the access is probably different across the world. But in the U.S., you don't need a cable subscription to watch SmackDown live. Uh, You can watch it over the air with an antenna. But even in the case of New Japan, which has no linear TV distribution right now other than the Roku channel, which is through the Internet, which anybody can have access to. You don't need a cable subscription to get the Roku channel. And this was the survey was distributed before that was happening anyway uh, in late December, early January. And even the the people who say they watch New Japan regularly, 69% of them say they live in a home with traditional cable access and a quarter of them uh, have v- MVPD, MVPD, virtual MVPD access. Point is only 8% of people who say they watch New Japan say they have no access to cable, which is the same portion uh, who uh, said they were current viewers of AW Dynamite. So that was a little surprising. And Ring of Honor even, uh, a lot of its distribution are through local affiliates, uh, local television stations that are uh, affiliates of Fox or other broadcast uh, networks, and even that—that that one, uh, only six percent of Ring of Honor viewers. In fact, the lowest of all, only six percent of Ring of Honor viewers don't have access to cable. Other takeaways from this study: uh, women in general are kinder to WWE programs. Uh, women were far more favorable. On Raw, on SmackDown, to a lesser extent on NXT. Women were slightly less favorable than men on AEW Dynamite, but uh, on on Raw, a margin of of 3.8 to 2.8. This was uh, the average response on a scale of 0 to 5. And how likely would you be to recommend these programs to a friend? And for Raw, it's a 3.8. For women, I should say this is... Uh, the female responses because we could have had uh, people under the age of 18 here responding as well but a 3.8 for the female response to a 2.8 for the male response smackdown was similar margin Uh, 3.9 was the average female response a 3.1 was the average male response and a 3.5 to 3.1 in the case of nxt and the average response on AEW Dynamite it was very similar, but uh, men more favorable, or I should say the male response more favor- favorable on AEW Dynamite 3.8 to the female response on average 3.6. And uh, I'm not sure what to make of that. Maybe it is just that uh, WWE has a far stronger female roster than AEW Dynamite does. And in fact, female respondents were uh, on average more uh, likely to recommend AEW more likely to recommend Raw women were more likely to recommend Raw or Smackdown than they were to recommend AEW Dynamite and the opposite was true for men and then WWE Chief Financial Officer Christina Salen had an interview with the Wall Street Journal this week behind the paywall and now since I have a uh, Shamed the news aggregators. Now I, I do see some are are uh, have gone behind the paywall, and they have gotten the quotes from Christina Salen. But we will go through these here. Where Christina Salen is uh, interviewed by Kristen Broughton, and uh, we get in, in this interview, it is pretty interesting. We get as much strategy conversation here as I've yet heard from Christina Salen, who's only been with WWE since August. So just about six months now, and we've heard her speak on two conference calls now, but mostly handling the hardcore financial aspects of the company in the conference calls, uh, leaving a lot of the strategy talk to chief revenue officer and president Nick Khan. And they go through a number of interesting topics. A lot of good questions were asked here, um, Asked about the return to live events, Salen said, quote, we believe there will be a slow ramp to live events over the course of 2021. It will be really interesting to see what degree, to what degree, these semi-permanent residencies, or maybe, who knows, a permanent residency one day, how we might be able to monetize though those over the long run, End quote. So there's the most hint I've heard that to be, might be thinking about i wouldn't put any bets on this or go running to uh to the news headlines to publish this but it uh it appears to be from this brief sentence that, that it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could maybe one day have a permanent residence somewhere where it produces some form of media content some form of tv out of um maybe not raw or smackdown but who knows um We've seen how W just at, at full sale. I don't know if you would call that a permanent residence. Uh, I don't. I, I had the impression that at full sale uh, in pre COVID times, W was probably still setting up and tearing down. But uh, a lot was learned from running TV at the PC in terms of look. You can save a lot of money by running television out of a fixed location where you don't have to t- where you don't have to uh, set up, tear down, and where you can save on rental fees probably as well but mainly saving on production expenses. Um, On ratings, Salen said, quote, from a television ratings perspective, since we launched the Thunderdome in mid-August, we've seen the stabilization of one of our marquee shows, Raw, and we've seen SmackDown, another one of our shows, its viewership was up 8% in in December from mid-August. In the fourth quarter, our digital views were up 25%. From a year earlier. And that does. uh, I'm I'm not going to look it up. But that sounds close enough to the truth. Um, WWE did stabilize. WWE Raw ratings and SmackDown ratings. Stabilized uh, with the advent of the Thunderdome. Uh, On the WWE Network. The Wall Street Journal asked. The WWE Network. Your streaming service struggled to grow. Will the streaming deal with NBC. Allow you to reach new audiences. To which Salem responded. Quote. I would argue against the idea. The WWE Network struggled to grow. From our perspective, we didn't actively and aggressively go after subscribers in the way that a large mass audience streaming platform would. End quote from Salen. The Wall Street Journal follows up asking, why is that? Salen says, quote, first and foremost, it's not our core competency to become Netflix or even to become Disney plus the WWE network by definition was going to be smaller than these mass technology platforms because we're not a technology company. We're an entertainment company from that perspective. The attraction of getting involved with another streaming partner is exactly as you described. It gives us access to a broader platform of folks within a premium tier. End quote. Um, I, uh, we will, we will talk about the profitability of the network in a moment after we go over this interview. Um, I think it's clear that the W network struggled to grow subscribers. Um, that said, there's something to what she's saying there in that uh, WB is not a tech company. It is not a, by its nature, streaming company or broadcast company of any kind. Uh, it is a content company more than, than either of those things. Um is a little spinny because, uh, as we know, before Salem was with the company, uh, it, it was the uh, stated objective and the projection, expectation of, of W executives that the, the W network would uh, gain uh, three to four million subscribers, simultaneous subscribers. Uh, that was uh, the expectation. And it, the W network fell well short of that. Um, I would argue that has a lot to do with the quality of the content, but it also has to do with, I think, a misunderstanding about the price and elasticity of pay-per-view events, which, which are the key piece of content on the W network. Um, moving on, uh, younger viewers. The Wall Street Journal asks, how else are you trying to recruit younger viewers? And Ms. Salen says, quote, we connect with the younger generations through our YouTube presence, through our TikTok presence. The other way that we engage our younger fan base is in consumer packaged goods like video games and toys, end And um, that is the sort of structural way that WWE uh, recruits younger fans. That's true, um, but I think the answer to that question lies in the content. What kinds of characters, what kinds of emotional uh, engagements, how do we emotionally engage younger viewers you're telling me the mediums social media platforms like youtube and tiktok you're telling me uh the type of product uh consumer packaged goods video games but uh you know what about uh, the opportunity that was missed on uh promoting somebody like bailey who could have been uh as if if handled correctly in the creative could have been a huge uh capture of of young fans and, and of kid kids who are fans uh, but that was clearly missed and i don't expect uh, any to be executive to uh, to bury the head of creative the ceo the board board of directors uh, chairman the class b controlling shareholder but uh, that's that's the real reason that uh, if you're going to work for wwe i think and work at this level and be asked real questions like this that you have to uh spin with and have these sort of spinny answers um but I, I I don't I don't know I don't know if um people in WWE really deal with that because we never um what I mean by deal with that I mean like actually ever think about the ways in which content and stars can actually promote audiences and actually can grow audiences and especially certain demographics of audiences um, I don't know how much the creative vision of Vince McMahon is being seen through um, and how much it is actually realized that the execution of the creative is by far the biggest detriment to audience growth. Anyway, uh, on international growth, Oh wait, there's more on uh, female audiences. Uh, the wall street journal asks women are taking a lead role in WWE matches. Does the company view women as a key demographic? And if so, what are you doing to attract more of them? Uh, Salen says, quote, women superstars are part of the WWE, WWE universe because they're great at what they do because it makes for great sports entertainment it's not just oh we want to attract women let's put some women wrestlers up there our female audience has always been there our storylines the classic good versus evil is not something that's very gender specific it's a misconception around the audience of WWE and it's very evenly split um end quote uh W audience is about forty percent uh, female, about sixty percent male. Uh, how does that compare to Impact or to AEW Dynamite? It is more female. Uh, the W audience has done a better job than other wrestling brands by proportion of capturing female fans. Uh, the Impact wrestling audience in eighteen to forty nine is twenty four percent of their total eighteen to forty nine audience. For Dynamite, it is one third female uh, of their 18 to 49 audience whereas with uh nxt raw and smackdown it's somewhere between 36 and 40 percent with smackdown being the uh, the largest at 40 percent but the wall street journal follows up with the question has wwe ever thought about confronting those misconceptions and salen says quote We've done a lot of work over the last five years with branded partners to attract brands to WWE, informing them, educating them. Hey, you know, this is not what you think it is. Our audiences are large and mainstream and reflect the country, end quote. Um, well, there we're getting at the the perception, the image generally of wrestling and of WWE. Uh, I think there's a few things to say the least to talk about there, um. Over the last five years, uh, WWE, and to some extent NBC Universal have helped in helping WWE uh, execute a campaign that has uh, enhanced their relationship with other brands, other businesses. Uh, and that's helped WWE's ad rates, probably. We don't have really numbers about that, but I do believe that the ad rates for WWE have improved. Um, and I believe WWE's done a lot in general, to enhance its image, to enhance it as more of a mainstream uh, family kind of product. Um, our audiences are large and mainstream and reflect the country. Um, I think WE's audiences, as, as we just mentioned, it is 40% female, at least the TV audiences, at least between the ages of 18 to 49. And I would imagine that's generally true. Um, in terms of racial demographics... We know that WWE has a large African American audience, much much larger than AEW's African American audience by proportion. Um, so it's a it's a diverse audience. Um, as far as the perception of WWE, I think WWE has done a lot with its non content to improve its relationship and its perception with other businesses. Meanwhile. Its content, while it's become uh, more acceptable for younger kids to watch it, perhaps it's become TV PG versus being TV fourteen or whatever the hell it was in the late nineties. Um, nonetheless, I think the the image of wrestling as stereotypically being um, unintelligent crap—not not even necessarily violent, but just unintelligent. Not respecting the, not serving an an audience that's very intelligent. A lot of sophomoric humor, a lot of bad humor, a lot of uh, juvenile humor, toilet humor, and things like that. Stuff that probably makes Vince McMahon laugh, but uh, but doesn't uh, improve the the perception generally of the content. Furthermore, I think there's um. While WWE has done a lot to improve its relationship with brands, it has simultaneously, through the execution of its creative, frustrated a lot of its fans, former fans, would-be fans, uh, would-be more engaged fans, just by the tense and contentious relationship that main roster WWE has with many fans. Obviously, there's a, a section, a layer of fans for whom that's not true for, but there's a significant section of fans for whom that is true for. Um, mainly just around I don't know, not lining up, uh, not, not perceiving the baby faces, the people who are baby faces in the wrestling fans' eyes to be baby faces in the narrative of the content. To put it too simply, uh, moving on to international growth. The Wall Street Journal asks, where do you think that the company can grow internationally? What's going on in those markets that makes you think it's possible? Salin says, quote, when you find places where we have a strong brand identity already and it intersects with a local wrestling culture, that's a great opportunity for us to build local WWE brands globally. India and Latin America have that intersection with, that, uh, with the WWE Superstar Spectacle on January 26th. We used India superstars. We have been developing local India talent for some time. We brought them to Florida, and specifically for the India market, we created the India Superstar Spectacle. We held it on India Republic Day, a big national holiday. We brought in India cultural references, dance troops, music groups, and it was rapidly received. Creating that kind of content is part of building a brand locally over time. The India Spectacular wasn't an event that had already been planned and then COVID happened. The India Spectacular was, how can we engage with our Indian fans in the time of COVID? It was, sim- it was a completely new idea, just like the Thunderdome was a completely new idea, end quote. Uh, and there we're talking about global localization. I think it's interesting that she says, um, let's revisit that. Um, when you find places where we have a strong brand identity already and it intersects with a local wrestling culture, that's a great opportunity. Um, and she seems to be saying that that is the case for India and for Latin America. Um, in Mexico, certainly is Mexico. Mexico is part of Latin America, right? I think, um, Mexico has a deep history of Lucha Libre. Um, I don't know. WWE has uh, at, at certain times engaged with a lot of uh, Hispanic audiences, uh you know, most memorably with uh, a, a program that happened on SmackDown some 15 years ago between Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio, two uh, very uh, over Hispanic stars. Um, in 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 India, I don't know if there's a, a, a huge wrestling culture locally, but India is definitely a place where WWE is popular and, relatively speaking, highly viewed. Um, sort of there talking about global localization, which is uh, something we've heard from Paul Levesque a number of times, and I would expect to see a, uh, an NXT and or a performance center in India uh, sometime shortly after uh, COVID is out of the way. Uh, on the general outlook of the company, the Wall Street Journal asks, if you look ahead five years... What will be different about the WWE business model from where it is today? And Ms. Salen says, quote, Today, we're really good at events. We're really good at linear TV. With the Peacock deal, we're really good at streaming. There's a great opportunity for us to build all of the things I just said internationally. There's a great opportunity for us in consumer packaged goods over time. When you think about, again, strong brand identity. And there's a great opportunity for us in digital beyond streaming. So what you'll see is even greater revenue diversification over time. We haven't gotten rid of anything. We've just added more. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think W probably wants to make, I mean, uh, yeah, the W wants to make uh, similar streaming deals to the one that it just made uh, with Peacock as it relates to streaming, as, as it relates to the W Network content. Uh, in fact, it already has in India, in Canada, in China. Uh, it hasn't made a similar deal yet in the U.K., the biggest, uh, the biggest market for WE that is remaining yet for the W Network content. Um, then again, they're charging W Network subscribers in the UK and in some other regions, including Ireland, more than $9.99. Um, as far as events, the way that uh, attendance, even internationally, was trending leading up to COVID, um, I don't know. I, well, I guess you can still do global localization and try to uh, draw, you know, do events that are really catered to certain local areas around the world. Um, unless they're drawing really big crowds, though, I don't know. Uh, we've already got a, a Florida Loop uh, pre COVID for NXT that was, you know, probably a loss leader. These were probably not profitable shows that were there to give the wrestlers experience, was the key value there. Um, Linear TV, there's probably potential for WWE to continue to grow its TV rights fees in the U.S. and around the world. And that's, I don't know that it has a ton to do with what happens internally at the company. It has more to do with what uh, the situation continues to be going forward for just the media economy and how badly uh, media companies, TV companies, networks, or even streaming services need Live content, which WWE has uh, high demand, high viewership live content. Yes, despite the television viewership declines over time, Raw and SmackDown are still uh, tremendously popular programs. And as long as they remain as highly ranked relative to other programs as they are, despite viewership declines that will probably continue to uh, drive viewership down in absolute terms. I'm not seeing any sign that Raw or SmackDown's ranking among other programs is on any sort of downward trajectory. Uh, Good content, bad content, or not. So finally, let's revisit the question of the W Network and to what degree, if any degree, it was worth it as a business move. Just revisit the the comments that Christina Salen made. Let's Look at those again first. Um, She says, quote, I would argue against the idea that the W network struggled to grow. From our perspective, we didn't actively and aggressively go after subscribers in the way that a large mass audience streaming platform would. I don't know what that means, I guess. You're going to be on Peacock, which is going to have more people using it than the W network, certainly. But wrestling, WB, even as big a brand as WWE is by far the leader in in the wrestling world, it's still a a niche product in the general sense. If WWE didn't aggressively go after a large audience, we didn't actively and aggressively go after subscribers. I don't know. And you said you were going to, you didn't say, but George, your predecessor, <laughs> George Barrio said, you were going to go after three to four million subscribers. Um, and maybe you could have m- made three to four million subscribers if the content was better. But And I think there is an argument that there was a, a flywheel effect in terms of popularity downstream to the launching of the network, having a lot of people revisit all the library content and have an ease of access to the premium content that are the pay-per-views. I, I do wonder if there was a, a flywheel effect downstream to W's popularity as a result of launching the W network. But uh, we will look one more time, maybe for the last time. We've only got to... One more quarter of finance is not reported in the history of the direct-to-consumer U.S. distribution of the WWE Network. And uh, there is a, a really good podcast, by the way, on the, uh, the Voices of Wrestling Patreon uh, done by Rich Kreich about... Um, he's doing a review of all the NXT Takeovers to the beginning of the NXT Takeover time. And the very first one, which was not called a Takeover, it's Arrival or whatever it was, uh, is the very first live event streamed it's the first event that was live streamed on the network and uh he went over the the whole history of uh sort of all the plans and various ideas and speculations going back to when the you know the w network was originally supposed to be an actual uh linear t v network traditional t v network which uh you can see how that would um if, if it was a premium channel like an HBO or a Showtime, you can see how that would be appealing to Vince or to WWE, uh, In that, you would circumvent, first of all, the the pay-per-view split that you're uh, probably unfavorably splitting with pay-per-view distributors, probably at a rate of 55% to them, 45% to yourself, roughly. And if you can just have a, a premium network, <clears throat> and then you can be the one to deal with the uh, the cable and satellite carriers, and you can. Uh, Work out your deals directly with them. And um, you don't have to worry about the splits that way. And you can sell carriage fees. And then on top of that, maybe some share of the, the premium fees for, for uh, customers who want the premium network. But anyway, as we know, the WWE Network ended up being an over-the-top streaming service going direct to consumer for $9.99, a price, um, I'll just be opinionated here, a price that was, in hindsight, obviously far too low A great deal for customers, great deal for wrestling fans, but a price that was obviously in hindsight way too low. Pay-per-view, historically, uh, studying the history of pay-per-view and the history of pay-per-view pricing, the history of pay-per-view sales, has taught me that wrestling fans will pay a wide variety of prices. You may may offer them a wide variety of prices when it comes to pay-per-view, but that will not greatly affect the volume of your sales. Whether it was uh, the in-your-house pay-per-views originally, the, the in-your-house pay-per-views in the mid-90s, uh, being these sort of special in-between shorter length pay-per-views that were only $15 at first when the standard pay-per-views were $30. Um, those weren't a huge success, so guys decided to just raise the price a little bit, up to $20. And it didn't really diminish sales, and eventually all pay-per-views were thirty dollars, and that didn't really diminish sales. And eventually, in, into the late nineties, yes, W got very popular. Um, so it's hard to analyze and unpeel that. But uh, and but over time, at, after the Attitude Era, and after WWE began becoming less popular off of its peak, uh, the pay-per-view price continued to raise to rise all the way up to the point where it got to sixty dollars to really where it still is today. You can still and you still will, after the migration to Peacock, be able to buy pay-per-views on traditional pay-per-view for sixty dollars or something around that price point. And um in all that time I'm not sure how much the changing of the price point really affected the volume of sales. When you're selling a pay-per-view, you're selling the um this is where wrestling used to be the old delivery uh method of hyping up events on television and then delivering the big premium product later. And pay-per-view is a hardcore product for the people who are passionate enough or, you know, hyped up and sucked in enough about this product to pay for it. Um, These are not the more casual people. Um, And I'm not talking about whether or not you read about the wrestling news when I say casual here. But these are the people who are uh, most into what you're selling. And, And these people who are most into what you're selling... Will pay a, a relatively high price to see the conclusion. Hopefully, the conclusion of your storylines and the big matches that you that you hype up to deliver. Anyway, to so what I'm saying here is to, to sell this service for 9.99, which is an amazing deal for customers, was not a good deal for WB, in my judgment. How do we know this? Well, all right, well let's get to the get to the point here. There's a lot of math here. If you if you are a a patron, thank you, and you can see the uh, the notebook here where we've got the tables all laid out here, the key assumptions, all laid out here, the various revenue streams that concern this question about whether or not it was financially worth it to launch the W network, uh, it's all laid out here. The W network, as we know, cannibalized, most obviously pay-per-view, but it also cannibalized uh, a part of WE's then-called digital media business, which sold pay-per-views directly over the internet, and it also cannibalized WE's home entertainment business, which sold essentially DVDs and Blu-rays and other um, streamed video-on-demand content that you would buy through iTunes or something like that. Um, Now, what we're not going to talk about here, but I'm going to talk about right now, is that, and I, I rarely ever hear this talked about, and all the lamenting about how the W Network was supposedly this huge failure and how it didn't work out and there were not enough subscribers. Nobody ever talks about this point, which is, by far the most decisive point in in this issue of whether or not the WWE Network was, was this business success, the WWE Network was launched in February two thousand fourteen, in the middle of a negotiation between WWE and NBC Universal for a new TV rights contract related to Raw and SmackDown. The timing of those two things happening so close to each other made NBC Universal and or its parent Comcast very uh, uneasy. Uh, about the fact that WWE was getting into the uh, the over the top streaming business, and that may, maybe that's I'm uh, you know, not in their minds, and nobody's obviously said anything publicly about this, but you would have Raw and SmackDown on the network sometime later. It, it ends up being 30 days later. There's still you know there's Hulu there for the next day, but Hulu uh, NBCU's got a piece of um, in terms of ownership of Hulu, but uh, I think there was some concern on on the on the part of NBCU and maybe on Comcast that that a WWE was getting into the streaming business that was contributing to the decline of cable subscriptions generally. And secondly, that they were going to take their own content, Raw and SmackDown, once they had uh, the rights to it again after 30 days and put it on the network. And maybe you wouldn't have as much of a reason to hold on to your cable subscription so we would continue to have access to the USA network. So maybe that was not a good thing for the USA network, not a good thing for NBCU, not a good thing for Comcast that WWE was getting involved in the streaming business. Again, this was 2014. Obviously, uh, some years later, when the next round of negotiations came up, it wasn't as much of a concern, even though obviously the network still existed. WWE, with the help of Nick Khan, uh, got a 3.6x increase in its U.S. TV rights fees. But in, um, in 2014, uh, WWE on earnings calls had been hyping. Vince McMahon himself had been hyping that WWE would get a 2x or 3x increase on its then-current U.S. TV rights fees. Vince McMahon famously uh, told, please act accordingly, analyst Brad Safilo that uh, he, Brad Safilo, could put he, him, Vince McMahon
0: in a hammerlock
2: if WWE didn't at least double its TV rights fees. Uh, and then the last question I had was on some of the comments, Vince, that you made about You know your television rights fees and what you feel would be an appropriate mark to market, uh, as far as you know, at least doubling. Uh, I just want to be clear that you guys are going to be held to that standard. I mean, that's uh, based on the contracts in play here. We're talking about 75 to 100 million of incremental evita if you did in fact double your television rights fees. So I just want to make sure that I understand what you're saying is that's what you're playing for here.
0: I'll allow you to put a hammerlock on me if we don't.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. I'll turn it over.
2: And when it came down to it, in May 2014, when the deal was done, WWE had renewed with NBC Universal, but they didn't triple their TV rights fees like they had hyped, maybe. They didn't even double their TV rights fees like Vince McMahon had promised. They got a 1.7x increase on their TV rights fees. So an increase, more revenue for WWE over time, making TV rights fees an increasing portion of WWE's overall revenue, something we're very familiar with today. An increase, more money, but that's a good thing, right? Well, the stock market uh, was expecting because of just the the speculation and the nature of the growing of TV sports fees at the time uh, and and the hype that uh, WWE was contributing to. Uh, Ran up the stock price because they were expecting a larger increase. That means they value the company WB at a higher price. Uh, When the the deal came out and it appeared to only be worth about 1.7, 1.7 X over what it was, what it was previously that resulted in a huge fall in the stock price. There was also a a class action shareholder lawsuit that uh, came out of that as well. Which I don't recall the uh, results of. But anyway, the timing of the launch of the network cost WWE—I don't know—hundreds of millions of dollars. I'll look it up. How much did it cost WWE? It cost WWE. So let's let's talk about what WWE had in the first place. Bef- you know, what was the value of the deal with NBCUniversal Universal from the from 2010, really late 2009. Through late 2014, that deal was worth 300, somewhere around 390 million dollars. That's what they had in the first place that they were looking for an increase over. They ended up with a deal that was worth 1.7x that, so somewhere around 650 million dollars, 660 million dollars, somewhere in that range, somewhere around that number. So let's let's go 650 million dollars is what they ended up with a five-year deal now if they had doubled they would have ended up with somewhere around 770 million dollars if they tripled they would have ended up with over a billion dollars so just the timing of the w network launch being so close to the negotiation of its biggest business deal let alone tv deal cost WB somewhere between 100 million dollars maybe as much as half a billion dollars. Um, so this question about, which is really what we're getting at, if I haven't made it clear, we're talking about is WB, has WB brought in more profits today than it would have if it never launched the network in some alternate timeline? And I think that the answer to that is, is you don't even need to look that deeply into the nature of pay-per-view and internet pay-per-view and home video to, to figure this out. The, the the cost to WWE and the and the damage to its ability to negotiate favorable TV rights fees makes this fairly easy to answer. Nobody ever talks about that. Everybody talks about the cannibalization of pay-per-view. This, this this cause cost WWE at a minimum a hundred million dollars over the course of five years. Over the course of five years. Now maybe you want to say that look, WE got a huge 3.6 X increase in the following round five years later, and it did, that's true. Um and maybe it gets such a big increase at that time because it didn't get the big increase this time. You can muddy the waters there. So this is all hard to talk about in definitive terms, as, as many things in wrestling business are. But let's just put TV rights fees off to the side for the next few minutes here. And we'll just, let's, let's assume that, yeah, WWE is a, it's a zero sum for WWE ultimately in the end with TV rights fees. Let's just, just, let's just assume that. And we'll look at the cannibalization of pay-per-view over time here. Profitability metric we're going to be looking at here is a (laughs) Operating income before depreciation and amortization. Somebody's got to write a song about that. Have they not already? And again, I don't want to recite a bunch of numbers that will make for bad audio, but uh, you can see the tables and the graphs in the notebook. If you're a patron and, um, I think the, we can talk about how pay-per-view, if we assume that pay-per-view would have performed uh, for each year from 2013 to 2020 in the same way that it performed in the few years prior, then the OEBDA over those years would be about $451 million. The network is slightly more profitable over that time. I'm having to make some assumptions here and some estimates because W is no longer, as of 2018, no longer breaks out OEBDA profitability for the W network. But if we assume that the W network was about as profitable or it had a similar profit margin in the years 2018 to 2020, a similar margin as it had in 2017, that is a 34% profit margin. Then the OEBDA from 2011... That's really what we're dealing with here. 2011, that's the beginning of the investment in the network. Through 2020, 2011 to 2020, OIBDA for the W network, I estimate to be around $462 million. $462 million. That's more than $451 million. That's more than, by about $10, $11 million, W network is more profitable than pay-per-view over the same timeline in this estimated hypothetical. But there's other issues abound here. We assume that uh, digital media stuff was cannibalized. I'll be, let's be gentle. Digital media was cannibalized, and we, let's assume that there would have been $4 million in additional OEBDA thanks to the selling of internet pay-per-view and in an alternate timeline, we end up with $108 million on the digital media segment in OIBDA versus in the actual timeline, an estimated $81 million in digital media OIBDA. We have to estimate this again because W changed its reporting methods after 2018 or after 2017, I should say. So there's a difference of about $27 million in favor of the alternate timeline, offsetting the entire $10 million that we made in incremental, that is additional, OEBDA profits by, uh, by converting to this network model. So that alone uh, takes away the benefits, the financial benefits, at least on, on its face. There's other arguments we can make here, but that alone. And, and then uh, home entertainment, physical media is, is a dying business. But uh, there would have been some money to make there, I assume, an, an increase of, of $6 million if there had never been uh, any network, an additional $6 million in OEBDA if there if the network had never launched. W would have gotten an additional $6 million in OEBDA from uh, home entertainment sales. Not much, but something. And this ends up with, in my estimate, if you accumulate all, this, all these numbers over time, and we end up with it with a a WWE network in our actual timeline that is down about $24 million from the alternate timeline where there is no WWE network. Now, that's not even including, you probably could have run a, uh, a, a UFC Fight Pass-like service or expanded upon the classics on-demand business that already existed when the plans for the network were really going into place. Um, it's pretty clear that WWE is less profitable today because of the WWE Network than it would be otherwise. Even though the WWE Network alone, in isolation, is more is a more profitable business than pay-per-view. There are startup costs that were several million dollars. Uh, we're not even talking about the TV rights fee effect yet. But there was an internet pay-per-view business that was cannibalized. I think there, there was an opportunity to uh, grow a UFC Fight Pass, a video-on-demand-like business, to monetize the huge library that W had has um and there's a few million dollars of incremental EBITDA to extract from uh, continuing to have a home entertainment business but there's that now you could argue that uh, the w network provided w with some data i struggle to see a huge value there but you could argue it um what other value do you get out of the w network well i think there's an argument that it had a flywheel effect to popularity in general um Probably offset by the quality of the content that's turned down popularity, but I think there's a, a flywheel effect, and I think there's this is totally intuitive, but I would suggest that maybe there's an increase in popularity following two thousand and fourteen just because you had very low cost easy access to monthly pay per view events and the enormous library that that led led to you know uh, in, an you know, in, in ease with which a wrestling fan could have uh you know these these uh viewing experiences where you go through all this old stuff that you remember when you were a kid and you get back into it's a w product in one form or another um i think there's maybe something to that what does that mean in terms of finances revenue and we have no idea um is it worth 24 million dollars i don't know but it's hard to make an argument it's, it's at, at a very minimum um not clear that it was worth it to launch the network. And it's not at all clear to me that the, I don't, I don't know that there's an argument to, to make about say this ultimate destiny where you end up selling your rights to to a streaming service like Peacock. You still could have sold your rights to a streaming service like Peacock in the end. I don't know. I don't see why not. In fact, you probably have a greater ability to negotiate a favorable deal to sell the the pay-per-view and library content at that point, if you've never done the W network and um, sold that content for way less than the real market value, if you will, if you've continued just to have your monthly pay-per-view events exclu- exclusively on pay-per-view for $60, uh, probably ultimately allowing you to have a more profitable business, A, but B, you've, you've got, um, greater leverage to sell, uh, a. To, to, to make a, a favorable streaming deal with somebody like Peacock or ESPN Plus to make a deal maybe more along the lines of the deal that UFC made with ESPN Plus when UFC, obviously, UFC never moved away, never cannibalized its own pay-per-view business. So, no, I, I think it's pretty clear. Um, you know, I, I this, this is hindsight being 2020. You know, George Berrios and Michelle Wilson, we were uh, a very interesting and Stimulating people to listen to you and to, to think about their ideas and their, uh, their philosophies of media and how it could apply to WWE and to professional wrestling. Uh, but in hindsight, not something I thought or was clear at all to me at the time, but pretty clear now in hindsight that the W network was not a financially beneficial move for WWE. So I don't know. There, there's that I'm, I'm as a customer I'm glad there's a W network. I bet there's a lot of fans who are glad there's a W network, and there's no no need for, for most people with broadband access to have to order $60 pay-per-views, and it's nice to have access to W's enormous library for a variety of reasons. Good financially? though No, no, it, it didn't pan out. And that's before we get into the somewhat more complicated matter of TV rights fees and the damage that the timing of the launch of the network did to the negotiation of favorable TV rights fees, at least in the U.S. So, I think that's all I have for this time. <laughs> Again, you can see a lot of the information spelled out in the notebook at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Um, you can read the Net Promoter Score article, a lot of details about demographic information and things of that nature, at WrestleNomics.com, with no pop-ups, no ads flying in your face. Go to WrestleNomics.com, you can read all of that. Thank everybody for listening I thank everybody for supporting uh, You can follow WrestleMomics At Russellonomics. Oh wait I, I, I thank um, Scott Criscolo Nate Milton And Steve Lee For having me on The Place to Be Nation Main Event Podcast I thank John Paz And Lavi Margolin For having me on The Business of the Business Podcast And uh, I think that's it. I'm everywhere these days uh, You can follow WrestleMomics At WrestleMomics You can follow me at Brandon Thurston, and I'm Brandon Thurston. I will talk to you next time.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies,